Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur. And I'm actually joined by him. He's in the living room. You can't see it. You can only hear it. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? That's right. My background is different, <laughs> and it's because I am in your apartment. That's Look right. That. Once again. Going to see Turnstile in New York tonight. Awesome. I figured, hey, Denny, I'm passing by Jersey City. You want to do an episode <laughs> in person? Sure. Let's do it. Here we are. It's nice to see you, and it's nice to... Uh, to do this in person again i forgot yeah. the the strangeness of digital i've just accepted <laughs> it as my new norm and forgot that it is strange and it's still strange does it smell clean in here or have i just been locked in here so long that i'm just used to it i think you're a little used to it but i am uh relieved to see that there are no dishes in the oven that's right i see you've gotten on lockdown when i first came to do this with denny a long time ago you could tell that he <laughs> cleaned up his room before i got here and i look in the oven and i just find a bunch of plates and cups and silverware. i'm like did you stick all your dirty dishes in the oven instead of washing them i was like bro someone's gonna whip you in the shape oh. soon and look at that it's it happened. happened the number of new appliances in here we have an espresso maker we have a coffee bean grinder listen that looks like a la crusette tea kettle <laughs> to me yeah. so i mean you're there bro you're you're there bro <laughs> you know single guy having eight knives worrisome Very guy worrisome. guy with a girlfriend eight knives on display it's like Welcome. Yeah, what are you doing without a knife set? It's called cutlery. Cutlery now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> cutlery and a La Crusette. Soon enough, you're going to have one of those uh, you know, baby bopper machines and stuff like that. Now, when you and your wife first lived together, was it a fight over things? Because the, more, you know, the most relatable scene to me now in movies is you know that scene in When Harry Met Sally with the wagon wheel. Right. I feel like it's always a battle. Every week, there's something new. Well... It's like that now, <laughs> but when we met, you got to remember when I met my wife, I was homeless mm. um, and just touring around and going crazy. The first apartment we got was an eight by 10 apartment right. that nothing. So it actually took us being together for like a year and a half, two years living together for a year already for me even to undump my storage space. <laughs> I had a storage space filled with all of my shit prior to that. So before we could start even adding nice new things, yeah. we had to take in all my crap oh. first, you know, which includes thousands of records, mm. hundreds of books, uh, all sorts of weird sports and music memorabilia. So yeah, so, so it took a minute because of that. But the one thing, I mean, listen, you go on tour for nine months out of the year and you're actually making a living wage, mm. you don't get to say what's coming into the house. <laughs> this is barely your house anymore, you know? You kind of lose it. So, yeah, I've got... Let's just say I got a bunch of La Crusette, okay? <laughs> hey, it's a, it, it's fine. When she moved in, I had a plastic water heater. And now we've we, we massively upgraded. Yeah, so. you guys are doing great. You're doing great. Oh, man. You know what segment is always doing great, Benny? What's that? This Day Music History. Oh, you're damn right. <laughs> On this day in 1978, Greece, mm. Frankie Valli's Greece, the title track to the film, hits number one in America. Wow. I love this record, personally. That's why I wanted to talk about it. Produced two number one singles, You're the One That I Want, sung by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, and also the title track, Grease, which was written by Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees mm -hmm. and Frankie Valli of the Four Seasons. It's now sold 38 million copies worldwide. 
And I'd say it's in the contention for the best film score in history. Not not just like film soundtrack, like film yeah. score where the the you know the songs actually make it into the narrative of the picture. Um, you know, I don't think they really do it like that anymore. So I really appreciate this album. I know every song, Grease Lightning. I think <laughs> I sang at a camp musical when I was a kid. But wait. I say they don't do it like this anymore. Is this is this what like High School Musical and Glee and all that shit is? And well, I... it's nowhere near the same. Okay. No, no, Glee's like like your favorite cover band. Like, there's oh, okay. no original things happening there. But but these movies does a movie exist? You know, maybe in oh. the Heights and stuff like that is is like the new stuff where where people are actually putting the songs in. I think Starsborn got there. I think oh, Bradley yeah. and That's Lady true. Gaga. I mean, Shallow was all over the radio. That's true. That um, was a good one. In the Heights. But, like, that's, like, a musical. Like, I know 96 Hours was on, like, Hot 97 in, like, 2003 and shit. <laughs> but, like, modern day, like, no. But I'd say probably Starsborn is probably the most recent one. Well, I do resent Summer Loving a little because it yeah, got in my head. so fast. Well, I got in my head that, like, if you're not loving in the summer, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> so, you know, like, when I'm, like, 15 and I'm like, wait, I just spent three months skateboarding with, like, five of my friends <laughs> sweating, you know, drinking RC Cola. Like, was I supposed to be at the beach romancing Olivia Newton-John, you know? I don't know. Oh, Benny, I want to, you know, segue perfectly, but not really. <laughs> On this day in 2006... After two two years, the Rolling Stones played their final show of their A Bigger Bang World Tour at the O2 Arena in London, England. Uh, it was the longest and biggest tour of their career, and it became the highest grossing in rock history. Right. Obviously, we're going to get in the Stones in a little bit. I but, believe uh, that tally was at about close to $600 million gross on that tour, yeah, which is yeah. absurd. Absurdly cool. You know what else is absurd about you know just grossing tours? how much bon jovi has made on these tours oh in like the 2000s to 2010s he's like up there with the stones yeah which is crazy imagine imagine the venues like bon jovi is playing in like south america and asia he's probably like he's probably blowing it out man (laughs) i'm sure he's blowing it out (laughs) god man (laughs) i gotta I, i gotta go from that to Charlie Watts? Are you yeah, joking yeah, me? Yeah, you shouldn't have gone low to oh. high. You don't go low oh, to high. <laughs> I went low to high so hard. Oh, my God. It's like a 12-6 switch. So by now that you're listening to this, you're a music fan, you know that the rock and roll uh, landscape has shifted forever. This past week, original Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts passed away at the age of 80. Um, he played a show a few weeks ago yeah. in, in Miami. Um, there was hope that he was going to be on the next tour uh, a couple months ago, a, a year ago at this point. We talked about the Rolling Stones performance at the Better World live stream at the start of the pandemic where he was air drumming. And we thought that was the coolest thing because yeah. he was giving like a fuck you to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A drummer who, I mean, you, you, you can't spell modern rock history without him famously. And I, I didn't realize this until all of the people doing the tributes played a half second behind Keith Richards, um, and that's what kind of gave the Stones a, a, a bit of the sound uh, that they have w- went on to find. So, Benny, I can rave about the guy, but coming from an actual drummer like yourself that knows all about this shit, what does Charlie Watts mean to you? Well, what you're talking about is the backbeat, mm-hmm. and that's what Charlie Watts was all yeah. about. Because he came out of a jazz world to a blues world and then into a rock band, he was one of those people who was 
so overqualified for the music he was playing the entire time that people would think that he's simple or something like that. But there are these just magical elements to Rolling Stone songs. They're one of those bands you might think, oh, that's a really easy groove to play. And then you get behind a kit and you're like, why is this so hard? Why is it so strange? Why does it feel so weird? There's two parts about Charlie Watts that I found kind of exceptional and unique. First was a little bit where he was asked how often he changes his drum heads. And he said as little as possible. And he hates changing drum heads and apparently had the same beater head on a kick drum for nearly 20 years, which is like, uh, it's so bold because it's so antithetical to the way people do stadium shows. Like the idea of a stadium show for a drum tech is like, this kit is reheaded, retuned, you know, good as new, like every day you play it. But I do think there's an element lost. There's sort of like a cast iron pan <laughs> element to like an old head or an old cymbal sometimes where it's just sounding a certain way and you don't really know why. And I think it's also an indication of like how nice and smooth of a player he was because I couldn't keep a kick drum head for 20 years. <laughs> the thing would look insane yeah. by the time, you know, I had one for a year. It'll have dents in it, cuts. It'll be crazy, probably blood on it. He was just such a chill character, the way he played, his whole vibe, that he could actually make a kick drum head last 20 years. It's kind of remarkable. The other part I thought was cool is like, you know, the Stones, you know, are famous for being uh, deviants, you know, <laughs> like, like yeah. doing drugs, having sex. Like it's a big part of the Rolling Stones. Charlie Watts never played that game. And he was married for 57 years until he died. Mm. And the last picture of him with him, with his wife, going to a, a Greyhound adoption center to, to get a dog. Um, and I was like, you know, he just really seemed like such a sweet guy in that way. And here's a quote. He said, like, one of the reasons that you keep yourself in the background. And he, he said, and I quote, because I'm not really a rock star. I don't have all the trappings of that. Having said that, I do have four vintage cars and can't drive the bloody things. I've never been interested in doing interviews or being seen. So he was. He was this classic guy back in the cut and obviously, you know, seemingly was a, a good man with a good life, like besides it all. So I think that's something to talk about. Mm, rest in peace, Charlie Watts. If you saw him next to the rest of the Rolling Stones, you know, just dress-wise, you'd think that he was there like accountant or like <laughs> right, something right, like that. Right, right. So famously, just you know, just like the same guy, and kind of, I don't know, maybe set the template for the whole thing. But there is a a Charlie Watts story, a Charlie Watts Mick Jagger story that I heard mm -hmm. that I'm just like. This seems like the definition of the drummer's mentality. So they're like on tour. Charlie Watts is in bed. Mick Jagger calls up and is like, where's my drummer? Charlie Watts gets dressed, goes downstairs. Uh, Mick Jagger opens the door and he punches him in the face. And he's like, next time I'm going to request for my singer. Yeah. And that, that just it, like that seems like the, you know, from the start of rock and roll up until now, that the drummer's mentality right there that's right you never let the <laughs> never let them get too far ahead of themselves you know you know come on come on we're all just humans i know you took a shit too 15 minutes ago you know mick jagger it happens oh man all right next headline today we're gonna keep it music re related and listen up you nirvana fans you're gonna want to dig into this one all right so we all know the nevermind cover um, apparently, Spencer Eldon, who was the baby portrayed on the cover 
has apparently sued the band, claiming that he was sexually exploited as a child. Uh, the cover featured the four-month-old underwater uh, trying to get hold of a dollar bill. I think you all have probably seen it already. Well, Spencer is now 30 and says that he has suffered lifelong damages after he was featured as a baby on the album cover. He said he undergoes extreme and permanent emotional distress with physical manifestations. Um, loss of education, wages, and enjoyment of life. So I got to imagine that walking around, seeing yourself as a four-month-old on T-shirts by teenagers has to suck. But, Benny, what do you make of this story? Yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. yeah it's strange. <laughs> it's a really strange story because I first heard it, and, you know, my first reaction, especially as, like, a lifelong Nirvana fan, is, wait, what? <laughs> Fuck this guy. Come on. Like, you're on the cover of, like, one of the most iconic records ever, you know? And then I saw, like, as you mentioned, some of the um, parts of the lawsuit just sound really, you know, they start to borderline sounding absurd. Like, it resembles a sex worker grabbing for a dollar bill. He said that, oh, I'm, like, the biggest uh, porn star on the planet because so many people have, like, seen my penis and... You know, at first, I'm like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Come on, man. And then I did a little extra research mm-hmm. just to do my due diligence here to find out how this was actually made, right? And it disturbed me a little. I got to be honest. So apparently, you know, the babies were passed in front of the camera by either assistants or their parents standing in a shallow end of a pool. When young Spencer hit the water, he drifted aimlessly toward the bottom for three to four seconds while an assistant blew a puff of air in his face to wrinkle his nose. I'm like, uh, okay. I have kids. I don't like that. And then uh, his father, in quotes, you could definitely feel the adrenaline rush in his little body. Spencer, like, whoa, what was that? After five shots, they got the shot. Um, apparently, Cobain wanted to do an underwater birth, and the uh, label was like, nah, that's too nasty. And for his little skinny dipping adventure, he was paid $250, which is a standard hourly rate for a no-name actor, apparently, and was later presented with a platinum album by the owner of Geffen. Uh, apparently, that's it. Wow. So, so you know, at first, I was like, fuck this guy, you know, this and that. And then I'm wondering, I'm like, you know, all these years, no one broke this guy off anything. You know, no one made him involved. All the money that came in, you never, like, broke this guy anything. You never made him happy. Never feel good about it. And I do wonder. I'm like, a little bit. Like, is this partially bad damage control? Like, you did something weird for the cover, right? Mm. Like, even though parents are are involved and they're advocating for their children, it's not like a three-month-old baby has any say about getting thrown into a pool and then having their penis photographed. And, and, you know, like that is a little bizarre. So you would think maybe after all these years, someone from that camp would would reach out, would say something, would offer some money, anything to kind of prevent something like this. And, uh, you know, when I first opened this story, I wanted to just be like, fuck this guy. And even though I do still find some parts of the lawsuit kind of a little crazy, I do kind of want this guy to get sorted out with something, a little bit. Oh, this guy should get more than a little something. I mean, every, listen, even if it's like percentages on T-shirts or something like that, right. number one, we got to talk about his parents because that's fucked. Like, for $250, you would exploit your kid like that? Dude, just the one quote. <laughs> just this one quote. 
Wait, when young Spencer, he drifted aimlessly toward the bottom of the pool. Yeah. Drifted aimlessly. <laughs> what does that do to a little brain? It's little fight or flight defense mechanism. God knows, like, what kind of shields come up after that when the one person you trust in the world <laughs> wants to drown you is, is basically drowning you for five seconds. You're not a baby going like, oh, Nirvana's a pretty good band. Like, they might make it. So I, it is. It's fucked up. It's kind of fucked up. He should get now. Dave Grohl has a squeaky clean image, at least like involvement tickets. I don't know how Dave Grohl makes this right, but it's kind of on him. Like, if you want to wave the Nirvana flag as I'm the drummer, right? Make this right. I mean, listen, the guy is 30. Yeah. I don't imagine this lawsuit is coming if his life is going that well. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's the trick. Maybe he needs a job. Foo Fighters. Well, Foo Fighters probably hire. They probably got like a hundred people on retainer <laughs> yeah. through the year. You know, like get this kid on retainer. Make yeah. him a warehouse manager or something. You know, like just sort him out. Get him some medical. Get him a salary somehow, Dave. You know, we're gonna take a short break and then joining us on the other side is June Lee, MLB right. staff writer on ESPN. So don't go away. This is the tune-up. Joining us on the tune-up now for our big 100th episode, June. I don't know if you realize this. This is our 100th time doing this together. And, you know, We made the call to the bullpen. We come in with ESPN staff writer on the Major League Baseball front, June Lee. June, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Uh, congrats on the 100th episode. Thank oh, you. Thank you. It's, been a, it's been a fun ride. Huh? It Thanks. has been. What, what, what's, your, what's been your favorite moment? Oh, uh, talking to June right now. Wow. That's, <laughs> That's quick. That's quick. I, actually, I appreciate I appreciate the fake flattery. <laughs> <laughs> I requested to Denny. I was like, listen, the Red Sox are in a tailslide. You got to give me a Boston guy. <laughs> <laughs> they are quite quite a tailslide right now. Listen, I don't start the beef, but I listen to one episode of Bill Simmons <laughs> and I start to get a little oh. like I start to get a little chesty as a Yankees fan again, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a it's been a really weird stretch for them. I, I think the bullpen has looked really uh, very, very not good. And the rotation has kind of come back down to earth from them being good at the beginning of the season. It's uh, it's been it's been pretty weird, a pretty weird stretch for them. How are you feeling about the AL East in general? How do you think this is all going to shake out? I, I mean, I love the division just as like a baseball fan. Like it's such a competitive division. Um, the Rays are so much fun to watch. Uh in, in that they're, you know, they, they just are so consistently good on a night to night basis. Um, you know, the Yankees and I think the Red Sox have kind of flipped their seasons where like, you know, I think the Red Sox were overachieving and the Yankees were underachieving. Now it's kind of flipped a little bit. Um, and the Blue Jays, I think, are going to be a force to be reckoned with next couple of years. Like that young core is so much fun to watch. Yeah. And as a baseball fan, Yankees, Red Sox aside, I mean, I, I can't get over watching. Uh... Bichette's kid, Guerrero's kid, Biggio's kid. It's just so yeah. much on that team, you know? Yeah, I, there's just so much exciting young talent in baseball right now that I think is uh, really good for the sport. And I, I think just this year in particular, it's been like an exceptional year for like storylines in baseball. Um, I think there's more, you know, casual fan interest in baseball because of how many exciting young players there are right now. Yeah, I actually had a question about that for you, you know? Um, yeah, I'm a lifelong Jersey guy. So, so Mike Trout, of course, is, you know, one of our own. Uh, yeah, Millville's own. Yeah, the, Mill, <laughs> the Millville Meteor. You know, I've even gotten some inside information on 
Mike Trout, people who taught him in high school and stuff. And wow. Like, wow. Real nice guy. Nice family. It all corroborates. I want to like him. But let's be honest. He's so nice. He tries. But I think maybe there's been a little bit of a failing in making him the face of baseball, even though he's, you know, arguably the best player for a long time. And I, you mentioned it. So who, who do you think, like, should be the face of the game moving forward? Well, I think with Trout specifically, like there's been a lot of t- conversation around him being the face of baseball and him, you know, falling short of of what it requires to be the face. But I also think that if Mike Trout was putting himself out there in that way, that wouldn't be authentic to who Mike Trout is as a person. Um, and at the end of the day, what resonates with, I think, fans, um, you know, myself as a 26 year old person who loves sports and baseball, like I want authenticity. Like if Mike Trout's not that person, like it's fine. Um, there's so many other people who can be faces of baseball. Um, you know, I think Shohei Otani is the other one is an obvious one who's crossed over as, uh, beyond sport, uh, beyond baseball is just kind of this like mega star athlete in, in the just ridiculous things he's doing on a night night basis. Uh, Fernando Tatis, Vladimir Guerrero, Jr. Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, there's so many exciting young players right now in the game that are willing to put themselves out there that the responsibility shouldn't just fall all on one player. Mookie Betts is another guy who I think, um, you know, has, has the potential to be a face of baseball, just given his skill set and his personality. Like, uh, you know, I think Bryce Harper and Trout were kind of pushed as the guys for a while and it just, it didn't really work. Um, and so I, I don't think the responsibility needs to fall all on them completely. And I also think this is partially a generational gap too, where mm. you have this new generation coming in that is grew up on social media, I've had a Twitter account and a Facebook account and an Instagram account since I was in high school. That's everyone coming up right now. So they know how to market themselves in a way that feels authentic and and it is good for growing the game with, with young fans. Mm. So I want to keep it in California. Uh, I want to move up to the Bay area. Uh, The giants on an unbelievable pace. Currently they're leading the league in homers, stuff like that. What is the biggest key to their success? I I know that they're, uh, that they're starting lineup. They've been a little dinged up recently, um, but their starting pitching has uh, really been good. So what what can you say has been the key to their success thus far? I think depth. And Mm -hmm. I think it's something that's uh, a result of, the Rays philosophy spreading across baseball, like Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi worked together with the Dodgers for such a long time. And I think what I think Friedman's fingerprints are all over a lot of the best teams in baseball right now and how they've approached building their, their teams, whether that's, uh, you know, in Boston with Heim Bloom running that, that squad, Houston with James Click, um, Tampa Bay is obviously still Tampa Bay. Eric Neander's running the team over there, but um, he's a, he's a protege of Andrew Friedman and, and that kind of whole philosophy. And they've done a really good job of, building out organizations that lead on the analytics, but also having the people skills to balance it out and knowing when, how to, how to kind of manage people and also how having enough feel to have the people skills to balance out this kind of cold analytics approach to baseball that's kind of taken over the sport. Um, And so I think that that approach has gone to San Francisco where they remind me a lot and excuse the Boston Homerism here, but they remind me a lot of the 2013 Red Sox and that it was a bunch of guys where uh, you know, they, they kind of built up the depth of that team and they've gotten a lot of surprise performances from guys like Kevin Gossman and Andrew Discofani and Mike Yastrzemski has turned into uh, a prolific hitter in that lineup. And that's not like top prospects, that's scouting and that's development. And that's that's how this team has been able to beyond exceed expectations this year um, and, and, and throw thrust themselves into the conversation of the best team in baseball because they've built out that 
this this team that is not a he- top heavy roster. If you look at you know a team like the Angels that has Trout and Otani and Rendon and invest a lot of money into a couple players and it hasn't really filled out the rest of that roster. The Giants have kind of taken a different approach to that. And I think it's very similar to the philosophy that's spread across baseball over the course of the last like five years or so. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that philosophy, is there, you know, behind the curtain of the game, is there a uh, real tangible gap to the teams that have adopted the, you know, Friedman analytic type of uh, style uh, as opposed to the ones that are kind of maybe potentially saying steadfast against uh, well, I, I actually think that the analytics uh, movement is the predominant movement in baseball right now. And the thing that's pushing back almost the counterculture within baseball in terms of how teams are approaching building is by integrating that human aspect again and finding the balance between those two things. Because, right. you know, I think in sports and I think this is true of society as a whole is like it goes in trends and it'll swing to extremes. And, you sure. know, at one point when Moneyball was written, that was like the n- niche, like new countercultural movement in terms of how to build teams. And now that's every single team, every single owner is like, give me my Moneyball guy. But the way that teams are kind of finding an advantage now is finding the balance between building with analytics and then also managing people in this kind of old school traditional way and finding the balance between those two things. So I think we're starting to find a happy medium between kind of the old school baseball scouting way with, you know, leaning on personalities and, and kind of gut instincts. And also uh, this like wall street mentality of looking straight at the numbers and, and not really thinking about the humans behind those numbers as well. Interesting. And then there's on the other coast, the New York Yankees are just like, you know, we're going to put a bunch of people that can just crush the ball. And, you know, thus far it's worked. They added Rizzo, they added Gallo. Um, As part of those moves, what specifically do you think is adding those two guys as hope for their turnaround? I, well, I think it's a, it's the depth thing again, because I think where, where this team was falling short was, you know, you were having the top end of the roster perform for a little bit. You know, there, there were stretches where Judge and Stanton were really, really good at the beginning of the year and then they fell off. And then they didn't have that depth to back it up. Like a guy like Glaber Torres struggling was a really, really big deal. And it got exacerbated because the top end of that roster wasn't performing. I think that was true in the rotation as well, where, you know, you had a couple guys go down with injury and then you had a stretch there for the Yankees where that depth didn't, uh, it, it didn't wasn't able to kind of make up that ground. And suddenly they have all these guys come in. They suddenly have an influx of guys where, you know, by the end of September, uh, they're expecting to have Luis Severino back and Domingo Herman back and Cord Kluber back. And so they suddenly have all this depth again, which is why I think they're performing again. Um, and so it's the boring answer, but it's really just a depth, the depth of the roster, which is why you look at the Rays and why they're so successful is that that organization just has so much depth top to bottom. And they're able to have guys when guys struggle, other guys at other positions will step up. And it's a bunch of guys who play at above replacement level and are very consistent and bring their production on a night to night basis. It was wild watching that with Torres this year, because more often than not, a young player, you know, struggles for the Yankees. It gets lost in the midst of the Yankee season. You know, that's one of the, great things about being a Yankee fan is, oh, we're going to spend $120 million on this guy and he didn't work out. So let's not think about that anymore. But they were struggling so much. And like you said, the lack of depth, all of a sudden, the kids like Torres and, you know, Sanchez now a few years in are really getting highlighted and like, are these the right guys? And normally in a Yankee situation, they'd be like, oh, they'll be fine. Right, right. It's it's that uh, it's that. It's that I mean, that's the luxury of having a, a big salary team is usually yeah. you have you're able to build at the top end of that roster with like big name guys and also build up that depth. And right. um, I think that was the, the big weakness of the Yankees early in the season. That's why Stanton's been able to uh, just hide around for the last few years. <laughs> Any other <laughs> and pariah, you know, with that kind of salary. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Uh, well, you know, you talked about analytics and uh, the Seattle Mariners this past week invented a new analytic. Everyone's heard of run differential, but June, have you heard of fun differential? <laughs> so their manager was going on, you know, they had a minus nine run differential on the road trip, but he's like, but we had a plus 90 fun differential in your expert opinion. What factors go into fun differential? Uh, I think it's having a good, it's all the intangible stuff, like good clubhouse chemistry, having guys who are willing to be themselves. I think we're seeing a cultural change in baseball currently where, uh, there, there used to be this, the sentiment in baseball that you had to like be an established veteran in order to like fully put yourself out there, show your personality, like having a social media profile, even like 10 years ago was kind of viewed as a taboo thing because it was viewed as like the self-promotional thing. And now that you're seeing kind of the young wave coming up earlier and earlier, and then also being the stars of the sport, that culture is kind of flipping on its head where it's like, oh, you can compartmentalize, like, you know, putting things out on social media while also, uh, you know, being a team player and, and, you know, being able to balance those two things. And so I think, you know, we're seeing just the fashion across baseball be more fun. Like the Mariners have a lot of really fun young guys. Um, you know, a guy that I've talked to a bunch is Taylor Trammell, who I think is a really interesting personality across the sport. Mm. Um, you know, you're seeing guys who are willing to show their personalities, more chains, more, uh, flashy sneakers. Um, you know, I talked to, uh, an executive over at major league baseball and they're talking about, uh, integrating painted bats into the game, um, which has been used in home run derbies, but a way for guys to show even more personality. And so, um, I think that that kind of coincides with this, uh, youth movement that we're having across the sport right now. I love the umps having nice kicks this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wrote a story about that a couple a couple months ago, but the the rise in sneaker culture among the umpires. Yeah. Well, every team needs a vibe. I mean, it's like this when you tour with a band. So I, I've met people who really aren't very skilled at anything, but they're just vibe effects, <laughs> you know? They're like they're, they're the people you just need around for vibe, you know? And it's it's important. It's important. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? You need guys like that. Well, speaking to, to changes to baseball, I saw another article recently about, you know, the uh, proposed changes of baseball and things that some players think are a problem. Some don't. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, pace of play, the shift, uh, DH? Are you, are you up for these changes or is it, you know, one one or the other? Uh, I'm open to see kind of what rule changes exist for baseball. I think that's kind of an unpopular opinion among some of the traditionalists, but you know, baseball has changed in the past where we've seen, you know, the integration of shifts and we've seen the mound move back in the sixties because Bob Gibson was dominating too hard. And we're starting to see a new generation of pitcher that is more optimized for throwing harder than we've ever seen before. And like, you know, Joe Schmo, who's called it from triple a throws 98 miles per hour now. And just like 10 years ago, it was an anomaly that anyone threw 98 miles per hour. It's just a completely different game. It's much harder for hitters to hit now because of that increased velocity. So I'm at least open to seeing these rule changes. Um, I, I think in terms of what baseball needs to change long-term is, um, you know, I think the two most important things are, uh, the say of the minor leagues and growing the future of the game because there's a contraction of that and minor leaguers are paid below poverty salaries. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that is a, a crucial issue that is becoming more and more in the spotlight. Um, and then another issue, I think, in terms of streaming accessibility and video accessibility is MLB reducing blackouts yeah. um, because, you know, if the Field of Dreams game was in Iowa and Iowans have five different teams blacked out despite Whoa. not having a major league team in that state. Wow. Um, 
And, you know, I, I live in New York now. I'm originally from Boston. That's like a four and a half hour drive. Uh, I can watch Red Sox games from New York, yeah. but I, Iowans are five hour ways, I, I believe, from St. Louis, and they can't watch St. Louis Cardinals games. Like, there's no point in having this advanced streaming service if, like, fans can't easily access watching these teams. Um, okay. And, and, it, especially as someone who who does i don't have a cable subscription despite working for espn like i watch all my games all my sports on streaming almost or use my my parents cable subscription yeah, like it's the future of where things are going and uh mlb needs to make sure that their sport is as, as accessible as possible on the internet in order to make sure that that next generation of fan is going to uh be there for for baseball moving forward yeah that's um, a good point I'm so happy that you brought up the Field of Dreams game because we watched this as Yankee fans and we're like, oh my God, it's going to happen. And then it didn't. But to get to the actual concept itself, I know the Major League Baseball is going to bring it back next year. Uh, I read an article on CBS recently that in 1899, um, Major League Baseball had a game against the pyramids in Egypt. So, June, where would you next want to see one of these MLB games next? Uh, I want to see like a Sandlot game. I think oh, that yeah. would be really, really fun. Ben, you said that a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be really, really fun. Um, it would be cool to see like games in states that aren't necessarily baseball states like Montgomery, Alabama. Like Montgomery mm -hmm. has a has a deep baseball history. A lot of famous players from Hank Aaron, uh, you know, are, are, are from Montgomery. Um, Tim Anderson's one of the faces of baseball is from Alabama. And um, Alabama is a place where... Uh, uh, is, is a place where I think baseball could continue to, to grow. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a, a really big opportunity here for baseball to have these like kind of novelty showcase games, because not only are they like really fun events, but they're like the field of dreams game was beautiful to watch on television. Like just seeing the imagery of that was great. I think something that MLB has to kind of keep in mind though, in regards to all of these novelty games is like, you know, we're all baseball fans. Like we love, like, I think field of dreams is a little overrated, but like it's, it, it's, it is, it is like, it is a classic baseball movie. Right. And like, we all know the reference points of field of dreams. Yeah. That being said, um, ridiculous concept though. <laughs> I mean, come on. like, like, from, that, 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 from, from minute zero to minute 10 of that movie. I mean, absurd. <laughs> um, that, that being said, like, it's important that baseball is not just, you know, marketing to the fans that they already have and, and trying to yeah. create an environment where, you know, Tim Anderson, for example, to cite him again, had never watched field of dreams. Like, right. And he, he obviously hit the Homer, but like you want more baseball to expand his audience with getting guys like Tim Anderson who haven't watched field of dreams before. And um, I, I worry that MLB struggles to find the balance between kind of marketing to fans that they already have versus trying to reach out to uh, fans who maybe are only curious or, or vaguely interested in baseball. Yeah, not too many under 20 Costner fans out there these days. Is there? <laughs> I love bodyguard. I mean, I heard I heard one proposed uh, Cedric Mullins, the Orioles proposed one of the rule changes as getting two runs for a 500 foot homer. I'm sure. That oh, I'm kind of into that. Now. What do you think of that, June? That would be fun. I'm I'm definitely open to that. Me too. <laughs> like you could actually put like an extra line in the stands. You know, you could sit. Yeah. 500 yard <laughs> line like. And then like John Carlos Stanton, when he hits a homer that's 500 feet long, like it has extra value. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a good idea by uh, by Cedric there. So st sticking getting on to music a little bit. Um, sure. You know, I know you're a, a big music fan. And I was wondering what in your years of covering baseball is the best walk up song you've ever heard? And 
if you had an opportunity to come up to the bat, uh, what would your walk-up song be? Um, I think in recent years, my most the most favorite walk-up song, Xander Bogarts, and this is the Boston Homer in me coming out, but Xander <laughs> Bogarts walks up to the plate to DMX's X can give it to you. And like, I think it's just so funny and yeah. so perfect every single time, especially given that Xander is like one of the best players on the team. Sure. Um, but uh, that, that is probably my like recent favorite. Um, Koji Uehara used to come out of the Red Sox bullpen to Sandstorm by Darudi. And like, that was awesome it was just like such a vibe yeah. um i think if i was you know coming out of a bullpen or like coming up to the plate as like a Korean, as a proud korean american as a big fan of bts it's probably like a bts song oh okay <laughs> I love that. cool yeah. yeah oh man there's so much more that we want to get to but we want to be respectful of your time and your deadline but i just want to get you out of here on this so it's been highly publicized how Kanye locked himself in the Mercedes. <laughs> if you had to finish a project, which major league ballpark would you lock yourself in? Uh, oh man, I'm going to not say Fenway park because like, yeah. that's the yeah. easy Homer answer. I've been such a Boston Homer on this podcast. Um, so that's probably my real answer. If I had to give a non Fenway park answer, it would probably be Dodger stadium and like the upper deck. Cause like the sunset is so beautiful every single night there and you see the mountains and it's uh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Vibey. It's vibey. <laughs> it's very vibey. You yeah. make very, very, you would very, very relaxed writing up there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Check out his work on ESPN.com on around the horn a couple days a week and all over the ESPN platforms. If you put on your TV and you subscribe to cable, you'll probably see him. Uh, June Lee. Thank you very much, June. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Great conversation with June there. He is at June Lee on Twitter. But it's not time for us to give you that information. No, no, no. Because we're coming back for one more take, one more hit. It's time for the Tune-Up Encore. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Okay, so Denny, the NBA offseason. Yeah. It's uh, starting to... The dust is settling. That's right. I've had the summer league. Seen some of these kids. Seen some of it pan out. I'm not following for the, the Josh Selby trick. <laughs> you know, summer league performances don't mean too much. But now that I've really had time to think about it, I don't think the Lakers are coming out of the West. Oh, I love that. And you know I'm a LeBron guy, the biggest LeBron guy, and I'm I'm scared to go preseason into this, but I'm not following for this Carl Malone, Gary Payton scam going on. <laughs> There's something funny. There's something amiss. And unless Anthony Davis plays like 75 games at an absolute elite level next season, I don't see it. Mm. And you know who I'm seeing, who I'm starting to creep into the narrative here is making me feel <laughs> nice and warm. Yeah. Who? It's the Golden State Warriors. Oh man. Here we go. I love this. I think they're back. I'm right here with you. And if Clay Thompson is, is 80% of himself, 70% of himself, that team is right back, right yeah. back to where it needs to be. And a lot of fun to watch. So in the encore, you know, for a couple of years now, I've been nothing, but the, the top of LeBron mountain, Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a little offended that he's hashtag Washed King already this season. The season hasn't even started. <laughs> he's already on this Washed King shit. Russ is saying all the right things, but he's still Russ. And I'm just, I'm losing faith. And not to mention, you know, there's a lot of unlikableness on that Lakers team. <laughs> oh, shit. 
Let's just talk about the fact that Carmelo Anthony has started a podcast, okay? And it's literally, it's called What's in Your Glass, and it's him sitting down and drinking wine with his friends, who, if I'm not mistaken, he stole this concept from LeBron, and I think LeBron stole it from Alabama football. Right. So just the the hypocrisy. You know, a, a team has not matched the identity more. You know, L.A. Hollywood's going through a rough time, and the Lakers match that identity of trying to hold on to the past while still trying to be relevant in the current. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a wild year. And as I mentioned earlier when we were just talking, imagine being Malik Monk this year. <laughs> you have a bad game. You go three for twelve. And then you're sitting in the locker room, and all of a sudden, six, seven old-ass motherfuckers <laughs> are all coming up over your shoulder telling you what you should have done, what you should have done better. <laughs> Veteran leadership is a thing that you need, yeah. but you only need so much. Did you see the excerpt from this Giannis book about Jason Kidd and making them, they like got blown out. I think this was like 2013, 2014. They got blown out against the Charlotte Hornets. And Jay Kidd made, uh, you know, that like Jared Dudley team, Chris Middleton, he made them practice on Christmas. Oh, oh, Jay Kidd. And oh, Jared Dudley comes to the defense of Jason Kidd. And then a week later, he has an assistant job on the Dallas Mavericks. I love how the NBA works. I oh, just love that it. Nepotism. <laughs> All right, so Benny, for my encore this week, there's a number of ways I could go. We could talk about the College Football Alliance, which what a... What a, I, you know, I know the kids love to use the word chuggy. A chuggy alliance by the three least important conferences in the country <laughs> is, is, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go with a matter that's close to home. I'm going to talk a little women's soccer, right? And I'm going to talk about what just happened this past week between um, Angel City, which is the new team starting in L.A., bunch of famous names own that team jessica beal jessica chastain they're involved with, with the team mia ham so it's like they got all of the celebrities in la doing their thing out there so they've named their new head coach a woman named freya coom who was previously employed by governor murphy and new jersey's gotham fc hmm. now in other leagues, when this happens, there's any any sort of compensation. Um, apparently, this was done all above board. There's no tampering. I know we love to talk about tampering uh, on this podcast. But the fact... See, this is both good and bad. The fact that Gotham FC is not going to be compensated for Los Angeles pretty much stealing their coach, it kind of sucks for them. Hmm. But the fact... My my biggest complaint about you know women's professional sports in this country and specifically the NWSL is it's too nice. Everybody roots for each other. You know they're all like the women's national team players, and it's one team. And I love that there's the, there is a group of tech investors that are heading this team, and they're making ruthless business decisions. I kind of applaud it. It sucks for my team. Frey was great. She got us up to uh, you know, the top of the NWSL table, really reinvented the culture at Gotham FC that much needed it. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy that she's going to go out to Southern California and live out her dream playing for, for what could be a, a super club. But man, this sucks that they're not getting compensated. And there is a expansion draft where these expansion teams can come and like take your players. You, you know, they do that in, in MLS. They've done it in the NHL. They're doing that in the NWSL this year. And there's not even any sort of protection. So hmm. not only could Angel City get Gotham's coach, they could take some of their players. It's, it's highway robbery. 
I mean, I kind of like it, but is it is it uh, an indication like once somebody's making shrewd business <laughs> decisions, the league's probably actually making money? That's it's probably true. It's probably true. And uh, you know, the governor's too worried about other things right now, apparently, than keeping his coach. But <laughs> anyway, if you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us at the tuna podcast at gmail.com to peas in there. If you want to follow us on all the social platforms, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we are at the tuna HQ. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the TuneUp YouTube page. Plenty of good stuff up there as well. If you want to follow the big man, he's at Benny Horowitz1, number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. Also, go follow June Lee as well. I am at Danny underscore Gallagher. A lot going on today, a lot to plug, but we had a packed show. It was good stuff. Benny, you got anything else? Yeah. Everybody love everybody. Go listen to the new Turnstile record. The show has ended. Go in peace. You've been listening to The TuneUp. <laughs>